Well, good morning, church. Good morning. My name is Chris Moore, the Family Ministries Director here at LBC. So glad that you all are joining us here this morning as we open up God's Word and celebrate His great love for us during this Advent season. Just want to first thank all the kiddos for coming up and singing and all of you parents who were taking them to practices and and uh, bearing with them as they learn the songs and learning to sign, which is really awesome. And, and speaking of them signing, uh, we want to welcome our Deaf Church here with us this morning. So, so glad that you are here. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. So if you want to go ahead and turn there. And I just want to remind you all of our Christmas Eve services this Saturday. We have two, one at 3 p.m. and the second at 4.30 p.m. And then on Sunday, we will be meeting as a church on Christmas Day, and we have one service at 10 a.m. So we hope that you will join us as we celebrate the amazing birth of, of Jesus Christ. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll jump right into the text this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning, and as we are going to be talking about your love, your great, great love for us. Even while we were sinners, while we were your enemies, while we were weak and ungodly and unable to earn it and for ourselves, God, you died for us. Thank you for that, a great blessing. Lord, I pray as we open up your word this morning that, Holy Spirit, you would illuminate it in our hearts, that we would understand it, that we would have ears and eyes to be able to hear and see it. God, that you would have your way with us, convict us, rebuke us, encourage us. Remind us of your great love, Lord, that we'd walk away out of here convinced that you love us. So God, I pray that you'd help me get out of the way and let your word speak. And so Father, we, we lift up this morning to you. May you be glorified and praised and honored. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. So in 2016, the greatest professional sports championship drought was ended. So after 108 years, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. <laughs> so I'm a Cubs fan. I'm wearing Cubs socks. I'm not going to show them to you. It'll take too long. Um, but as a Cubs fan, we got used to celebrating and enjoying a team that was always losing, right? They be, they're the lovable losers, as they were known. And we were used to them losing. We didn't care. We loved them anyways. And so the city of Chicago, likewise, the team on the north side of Chicago was the beloved lovable losers. So something happened after they won the World Series. All of a sudden now, a team that was used to losing had won, and this taste of victory was felt throughout Chicago and all the fans. And so there's this expectation that they would win every year after that. But what happened in 2017, they came up short. 2018, they came up short. 19, so on, so on. By 2021, most of the players that had won with the team in 2016 were traded away. And they've started kind of rebuilding the team. So the, the players that were immortalized all of a sudden became the players that fans, maybe in, in their minds, maybe not verbally saying it, but they started asking the question, Cubs, what have you done for me lately? You haven't won again. It's been so long. We need to be winning every year. So as I was thinking about this sermon, I was thinking about that question, what have you done for me lately? I think as Christians, we ask the same question of God, especially when we're going through struggles, when we're suffering, when we're 
when God's allowing something in our life that we are just wrestling with and don't understand, we may not verbalize it, but in our heart, God, what have you done for me lately? And so what I think we find in this passage is that Paul gives us the answer to that question very, very clearly. And we see the contrast of the way the world loves and the way God loves, and they are very, very different. So in this passage, I think there's, there's three ways that we really understand and the way, way God demonstrates his great love to us. And he, he demonstrates his great love to us first by revealing the reason for Jesus' birth. Jesus' birth, yes, it's a great miracle, but he came for a mission to die and rise again, to, to pay the penalty for our sins and to rise again to give us life. So understanding why he came. And then God demonstrates his great love by displaying the reality of Jesus' death. There's a reason why Jesus died the death that he did. The suffering that he experienced, there was a reason for that. And then finally, he demonstrates his great love by amplifying the results of Jesus' resurrection. And the amazing benefits that we have because he rose again. So we're going to jump into verses 6 and 8 in Romans chapter 5. And we're going to see how God demonstrates his great love by revealing the reason for Jesus' birth. So Romans 5, 6, and 8, we'll read that. So for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And so Paul uses the word we. He's including himself, and he's including the Roman Christians whom he's writing this letter to. We, we were still weak. And the weak could also be translated as inability or unable to save themselves. Maybe it's somebody who's trying to, in their righteous and their self-righteousness, trying to earn or trying to work by doing good things to try to earn God's favor. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And ungodly is describing a person that wants nothing to do with God, doesn't worship him as God, doesn't acknowledge him as God, doesn't honor him as God. So we get this picture of a person unable to save themselves who doesn't who don't want to acknowledge and worship God. And we jump to verse eight. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul takes it to the next level. He explains sinner is describing a more of a depth of sin. There's a derogatory flavor to that word sinners. And for us to really grasp why Jesus came, we need to understand what, who Paul is describing here. So the best way we can do that is if we go to Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, we start to get a, a window of this word, what, what Paul's person Paul's describing. So as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors were considered traitors. So these were Jews who were collecting tax revenue for the Roman government. They often were extorting people by taking more than what was required. So they were considered extortionists, traitors. They were considered thugs among the highest of criminal elements. So tax collectors weren't viewed very highly. But Jesus said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, he's in Matthew's house, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So Jesus isn't in Matthew's house 
telling Matthew all the ways he's got to clean up his life. You need to stop cussing. You need to stop drinking. You need to... He's reclining. He's enjoying being in their presence. And then what happens? More tax collectors and sinners join them. There's a house full of tax collectors and sinners in the house of Matthew that Jesus is spending time with. And to understand the flavor of this word sinner, we see it through the eyes of a Pharisee, the religious leaders of the day. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus, to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? How are you hanging out with these people? Worthless thugs. But when Jesus, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. As you catch that nuance, they look down upon the sinners and tax collectors. And it reminds me of my freshman year in high school. I grew up in Bakersfield. I grew up in Oildale. I went to North High School. So if there's any of you from Oildale, you're, you're, you're welcome here. <laughs> um, so Oildale, if you've been in Bakersfield for any amount of time, Oildale isn't viewed very highly. And I, I, I better understood that my freshman year in high school. We, I was playing on the soccer team. We got on a bus and we drove across town for, it was like a little mini tournament at another school. And we get off the bus and there's a PE class kind of in the way. We had to kind of walk through where the class was you know, doing their PE stuff to get to the soccer field. And as we're walking through there, uh, you know, a couple of the kids said, you know, what's up, Dalians? Right, if you're from Oildale, you're called a Dalian. In which we were used to that. We, we, we call each other Dalians all the time. And then there was, oh, you 08ers. So Oildale, the zip code's 93308. So 08ers, right, it fits. It's kind of silly. And then the, the next comment was, was Steen. I still remember. That's why it came up to my mind. But it says, you white trash Dalians go back to where you belong. Could write that off. That's a, just a high school kid being, being dumb. But when you understand the idea and the derogatory nuance of sinner, that's what Paul is referencing. It's this unworthy, worthless person when he uses this word in this passage. And so he's saying that Christ died for sinners. And Paul understood that. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was one of those guys who looked down upon the sinners. But we see that he comes to the realization in 1 Timothy 1.15 of why Jesus came. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to what? To save sinners. And he says, of whom I am the foremost. The man who once looked down his nose at the tax collectors and sinners realizes that he is the worst of all. So we find first that God demonstrates his great love by revealing the reason for Jesus' birth. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus' birth, though it's miraculous and amazing, it's stage one of God's rescue mission. The birth is significant because the death and resurrection are significant. And then Jesus ascends to the Father where he is alive today. 
and he will return someday, stage five, to make all things right. Jesus' birth is significant because it's first stage of God's rescue mission to save sinners. So when we think about this, some questions come to mind. One, are you in this room attempting to earn your salvation by being a good person? And for the first 18 years of my life, that was me. I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine in high school who was, she was trying to tell me about Jesus and share the gospel with me. And my response to her was, I don't need God. I'm a good person. Pretty sure when I die, he'll let me in because I'm a nice guy. But what we see is being a nice guy doesn't cut it. Do you understand that you are a sinner? Do you understand the depth of your sinfulness? It's okay to reflect on that because when we understand that in its right light, then we, we really understand God's great love for us. And so we get to the next demonstration is that we see that God demonstrates his great love by displaying the reality of Jesus' death. And the word display there is, is appropriate because God puts Jesus on the cross and he's displayed for all the world to see. And it's how and the manner of the way he died that's doing two things. One, it's, it's demonstrating that Jesus had to go through this horrific death to help us understand the magnitude of our sin and the lengths that he had to go through for us. And at the same time, he's demonstrating his amazing love that he went and did all of that for us willingly because he loves us. And so we go to verse seven. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. And Paul's trying to contrast. This is the way the world loves so that we can see the way God loves. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. A righteous person would be somebody who's noble, a man or woman of integrity. They're respected. And it says the world loves by, someone might scarcely die for somebody like that. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. And when we think about a good person, it could be someone that we love who's also honorable and respectful. And it says there that the way the world loves is that somebody might think about it I, might, I may die for that person, but I probably won't. I would dare even to die for that person. This is the way the world loves. Verse eight, but God shows, and in Greek, that's present active. He continues to show his love. It doesn't stop for us. And that while we were still sinners, there's that word again, Christ died for us. And if we go back to verse six, there's another phrase that's really important. He uses the word at the right time. And at the right time could have a lot of meanings. Mainly it's at the right time in human history, God sends his son to be born, to die, to rise again. It came at a great time in human history because at that time, uh, the Jews were under Roman rule. The Roman kingdom was very large. There was peace in the kingdom. There was a freedom to be able to travel so the gospel could get spread rapidly. The Greek language, which was very simple, was used by many people so the communication of the gospel could spread very easily. I think there's also another reason why it was the right time. It was the right time because it was time for a good old-fashioned crucifixion. And so contrast that with Jesus is here today. If he was going to be sentenced to death 
in California, he would go to trial, convicted, be in prison. He'd enjoy HBO. He'd enjoy some decent meals. He'd be able to get his degree. He might even have people come into to the, to the prison to, to preach the gospel. And then if he was to go to be executed, he would probably be executed through lethal injection. They'd give him a shot of something to make him comfortable, maybe another shot of something that would put him to sleep, and then he would die. Relatively speaking, that's uneventful compared to a crucifixion. So this is what happened in human history when Jesus goes to the cross. On the night that he was with his disciples, we're going to take communion together, but he was celebrating Passover with his disciples, giving them their last instructions, warning them what was going to happen. He gets arrested, gets put on an illegal trial that's happening at night, which isn't supposed to happen. And then he was accused falsely. Then he was beaten, mocked, spat upon, spat upon to the point where he was unrecognizable. He didn't, couldn't recognize who he was. And if that wasn't enough, then they wanted him to carry his cross to where he would be crucified. And he was so weak to carry his cross, someone else had to carry it for him. He gets to the cross and they nail, so you imagine a tent peg that's on steroids. It's a giant peg that's being jammed through his wrists and his feet. And he's up on the cross, humiliated in front of all the people to see. They mocked him with the sign above his head. And then he's standing there. And in crucifixion, it's a slow suffocation. So it's a continual trying to push yourself up to catch a breath before you drop back down and it's suffocating. And that's why for some criminals on the cross, if they're there too long, they'll break their legs so that they can no longer push themselves up so that they will eventually die. This is the kind of death that Jesus died. It was not easy. And so like I said, it reminds us two things. One, it shows how big our sin is, but it also shows us just how much greater God's love is, that Jesus would do that for his enemies, those who were too weak, those who were ungodly, and sinners. So let's contrast the world and God's love just a little bit more. So Luke chapter 6, verses 32 through 33 says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Jesus is like, whoop-de-doo. Even a sinner can do that. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And so we see that the world's love is dependent on what the other person can do for us. And it's a love that is described this way. It says, I will love you as long as you contribute something to my feelings and my needs. But the moment that you stop doing that, I'm ready to, to take off. I will love you as long as you agree with my lifestyle. But if you don't agree with who I, who I am and the way I live, you hate me. I will love you as long as you don't hurt me. I will love you as long as you pay me back what I've loaned to you. I will love you as long as loving you is not difficult and stressful. And I will love you as long as there's no drama in our relationship. And so we get this idea that the world's love keeps tabs on the other person's sin. 
But then the question is, what if God keeps tabs on our sin, right? What if we all have a, if you're familiar with the national debt clock, the calculator that's, I think we're at 30 trillion plus and it just keeps going, 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 going. Imagine we all have one of those. And then if you combine all of our individual clocks to a combined, the whole, all the sins of the world of every person that's ever lived and the transgression against a holy, righteous God, you start to see that the sin against God is huge. But if God kept tabs and he loved us the way the world loves, I don't think you see Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. But God doesn't love that way. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you should count our sin, O Lord, who could stand? Nobody. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. In Romans 5, 15 through 16, it's a continuation of this thought here later in the same chapter. Paul's saying, but the free gift is not like the trespass. This free gift of life in Christ because of what he's done for us. It's not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, so this is David, I mean, this is Adam who sinned originally and all mankind is suffering from the sin disease. So if it's for many died because of that one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Jesus' death paid for the many transgressions. Imagine the world debt clock. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. It brought condemnation to all of us. But this is the kicker. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Our many sins, the whole world against the one holy, righteous God, the free gift came in the midst of that. While we were still weak, ungodly sinners, Christ died for us. So we see that God's love, he comes after the weak, ungodly sinner. He, initi- he initiates his rescue mission with Jesus' birth on the Jesus' birth and then his death and resurrection. And he did that for his enemies. So our sin is great, but God's love is far, far greater. So when I think about the way God is, demonstrates the reality of Jesus' death, it's a reminder that none of us is too far gone. If you're in this room and you are thinking that I am too bad for God to love me and too bad for God to save me, you are wrong. Christ paid for you your sins. There's nobody that's too far gone. And we think about his love. How are we responding to our friends and loved ones when they offend us and when they hurt us? Are we quick to unfriend them on Facebook? That seems to be popular. I've been guilty of that myself. But it's a reminder, that's not the way Jesus considered those who offended him and hurt him and mocked and beat and his enemies. And how are you loving your enemies, those that you strongly dislike, maybe even hate? And the last thing is that pray that God will help you to love. Our natural inclination and our natural way of loving is the way I described. But God has given us the Holy Spirit to help us with that. We see in 2 Timothy 1.7 that, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power 
and love and self-control. We have God dwelling within us. Therefore, we can be empowered to love like him. And we're called to love like him. And so we see the reason for Christ's birth. We see the reality of of his death. And then thirdly, God demonstrates his great love by amplifying the results of Jesus' resurrection. And so when I think about an amplifier, um, so this electric guitar, I could be playing something really, really cool, but you guys may not be able to hear it, right? Maybe barely, okay? And so when he goes through verses 9 through 11, it's Jesus' death on the cross is powerful and it's amazing, but God's not done telling us what the benefits that we receive because of his resurrection, because of the fact he came back to life. And so it's like a guitar being plugged into an amplifier. It was turned up maybe to two, right? We can hear it. It's awesome. But God keeps turning up the amp so that you can feel it. You can see it. You can hear it and be blown away by his great love. And so we read Romans 5, 9 through 11. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. So imagine you are in a courtroom before the judge, the holy righteous judge, and you are guilty and your guilt is deserving of death. And when it says justified by his blood, it's essentially saying declared not guilty, declared innocent. You've been justified. That's pretty amazing, right? But then it says much more. He turns up the app, amp. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So if I'm standing there before this holy God, I'm grateful that I've been justified. I'm grateful that he considers me not guilty or innocent. But I'm more excited that I don't have to go be executed, right? If I'm in a courtroom, I'm excited that I'm not going to go to death. And so Paul is saying justification is amazing that you've been saved from the wrath of God for all eternity in hell. That is awesome. Verse 10, he turns up the amp a little bit more. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, turn it up some more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So not only have we, were we once enemies of God, declared not guilty, innocent. We don't just become neutral as if, yeah, go about your business. You are what you are. That's great. But we become his children. We've been reconciled. So we go from enemy to child. That is awesome. And now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So we get to enjoy this being his child for all eternity. And he keeps turning up the volume, verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And this is this idea that this amazing relationship that we have unhindered with God for all eternity will go for all eternity. Nothing can take that away. If you're struggling and wondering if if God will walk away from you, go and read Romans chapter 8, which is kind of the bookend of this this section in, in Romans. God will never forsake us. He will never leave us. We will enjoy that for all eternity where there's no pain, there's no sorrow, there's no more sin, there's no more death. 
this perfect relationship with God. And so Paul says that our response is that we rejoice and we boast. Because as we talked about a few weeks ago, this word really is a, a boasting in the Lord. It's this holy swagger of, God, thank you for saving me, a sinner. So we justification to salvation. We go from enemy, now we're a child. Therefore, we boast, and there's a reason why we boast. We'll go to Psalm chapter 13. We're going to focus on verses 5 and 6. But David is writing this psalm, and he's lamenting. So he's crying out to God because he's experiencing something that he's struggling through. And he's asking, God, why? What's going on? I don't understand. And he's wrestling through that, and he gets, he gets to verses 5 and 6. And he doesn't ask the question. He doesn't ask God, what have you done for me lately? He realizes and he remembers God's faithfulness to him. And this is what he concludes. But I have trusted in your steadfast love, a love that never fails. It endures. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Why? Because he has dealt bountifully with me. We boast and we rejoice because God has dealt bountifully with us through Christ. That is why we praise and why we rejoice. So what is our response to this great love that God has for us? One is we praise God. We praise him. We rejoice. We worship him. We recognize that we have no power to save ourselves. He has the power and he did that through, for us through Christ. And then we're called to love like him. And while that's not natural for us, because we've been given the Holy Spirit, we have the ability because God is enabling and empowering us to do that. And so I want us to think about three spheres of, of, or arenas in which God is helping us develop this love in our hearts and in the way we act and the way we live. And I think about it in a uh, sports analogy. And I keep going back to sports, so I apologize. Um, I loved playing soccer in high school. But I think about the first arena that God is developing and helping us learn and practice love is in the home. The home reminds me of preconditioning in soccer. So if you guys played soccer in high school, those first two weeks of the season, I mean, they, we called them hell because it was running, 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 workout, workout, workout. It was taking an out-of-shape athlete and trying to get him into shape so that we can move on to skills and technique. But it was really, really hard. And so in the home, that's where we do the heavy lifting of learning how to love each other. The home should be a safe place for our children to be sinners. It should be a safe place for us to be sinners. Because when we're real and we're vulnerable, then it allows us to be able to point each other back to Christ. Helps us to, to discipline our kids and to see what love looks like and how to, how to follow Christ it's our time for us as a family to get into God's word and let God's word instruct us. And then through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to be able to truly love each other the way God has called us to, which is completely different than the way the world loves. So our preconditioning and our practicing is in the home. And then we take all that hard work and we come to church. To me, the church is like a scrimmage. If you played sports, the scrimmage was you might've played with, against another team or maybe you split your team in half. You've got two teams against each other. And you might pause the game in the middle and say, okay, I want to move you over here. Okay, you're going to go over here. 
You go over here. Okay, now go. Practice. So do the heavy lifting, preconditioning, and practice. We take it to the scrimmage. That's the church. So we, that's another level of practice and learning how to love each other. And it reminds me, sometimes I think when we come to the church, we're expecting the church to be perfect. The church is full of sinners. It's not going to be perfect. That's okay. There's no such thing as a drama-free fellowship. I'm sorry. It's not going to happen. There's no drama-free church. There's going to be drama. There's going to be struggles because it's just another arena where we have to learn to love each other and point each other back to our Savior. We do all this work at home. We practice some more in church. Ultimately, so then we can go into the world and love those who are truly lovable like we were, right? We were able to go in the world and we could fine-tune this love because God has loved us and he's working through us. And then the world looks at these people who are loving them even though that they are weak, ungodly sinners. And how in the world are you loving me? Because Christ loved me first. So those are the arenas in which we love and that's how God is developing love within us is through practice. So we find that God demonstrates his great love by revealing the reason for Jesus' birth. Came on a rescue mission. Helping us understand the reality of his death. And then finally, so that we can see the results of his resurrection, the life that we have and we get to enjoy for all eternity with him. The birth of Christ is a miracle, but it's a miracle and the power is because of his death and his resurrection. And so when we find this love motivates us to love him, it motivates us to love one another, and it motivates us to love the world the way that God has loved us. So as we spend this rest of this week before we go to Christmas, take the time to personally reflect on what God has done for you, how that impacts your love for him and others. Help your children understand that Christmas isn't about gifts. It's about celebrating the amazing gift that we've been given through Jesus Christ because we are a sinner We are unworthy of that. Then consider how this great love that God has demonstrated to us impacts how you interact with your coworkers and friends, maybe even your enemies that desperately need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be reconciled with their Savior. So when we read a verse like John 3.16, it should pack a different type of punch. For God so loved the world, the world of weak, ungodly sinners, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but what? But in order that the world might be saved through him. So the question, God, what have you done for me lately? we find that he's done everything for all eternity. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to spend a few minutes in a time of communion. And it's fitting that this sermon ties with communion because Jesus, knowing that we are forgetful people, we often take our eyes off of the fact and the amazing greatness of his love that he's demonstrated through Christ. We forget So he said, I know you'll forget, so I'm going to give you something that you will be reminded of continually of what I've done for you. And he just keeps turning up the amplifier. He knows we need this. And so we'll spend some time in communion. But first, 
I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, God, your great love, it's hard to find words to describe it. The best way, as we see here, is contrasting it with the way the world loves. And, and so we can just grab a glimpse of the way that you love us. Jesus came on a rescue mission for us while we were weak, ungodly sinners, unlovable, unworthy. But God, because you love, not because we are lovable, because you are a God of love, because you loved, you did that for us. Thank you so much for that, God. I pray that we would praise you and worship you, that we wouldn't sit in shame, but we would remember that all that's paid for. We can celebrate and rejoice and boast in what you've done for us. Thank you for that, Lord. Pray you help us to remember that further as we spend time taking the cup and the bread and remembering you. I would thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so... Hopefully when you came in, you, you grabbed one of the, the cups on the way in. And if you're new to LBC, there's, there's two little tear tabs. There's going to be a, a little piece of bread, and then there's going to be juice. And uh, what we like to do and what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to ask you to spend a minute or two reflecting on what Jesus has done for you. This is a time of maybe confession, maybe repentance, and, and also a remembrance and a celebration of the fact that you've been saved while still a weak, ungodly sinner. If you're with us this morning and you've not confessed and repented and, and have a relationship with Jesus, we ask that you not partake uh, with, with us this morning. And I would encourage you to think about what we talked about today and what Christ has done for you, even though you are a sinner. And like John 3.16, those who believe in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. And I encourage you today before you leave to talk to somebody who's wearing a lanyard, find out more about that, get those questions answered. But for the next minute or two, I want us just to, you can gather with your family or you can do it alone and just spend some time confessing your sin, reflecting on the meaning of the blood and the bread and what Jesus has done for you. And then, and then I'll come back and we'll, we'll take it together. So go ahead and take a, a minute or two to do that now.
1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and 24, Paul is reciting what Jesus had, had done with his disciples on that Passover evening where Jesus is, is telling them to, to do this continually in remembrance of him. And so on your cup, there's two sides. Uh, the narrow bottom side is the bread. So if you want to go ahead and peel that open, and I'm going to read this passage. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord, Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let me take that bread. And you flip over to the other side and 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. he continues. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul wraps up this time and he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This proclamation of his death that he died this death for me, a sinner, weak and ungodly. We proclaim it because it's something that we can rejoice and boast about <clears throat> because he's done that for us. So pray one more time and then we will celebrate and we will worship our amazing God whose love is so much greater than our sin. Father, we thank you. Thank you for this reminder. We need to be reminded because we forget the great love that you have shown and demonstrated to us and continue to demonstrate through us through Christ, his birth, death, and resurrection. We boast and rejoice because you or will return. Jesus is going to come back and make all things right. So we have hope. We have joy. We have peace because of the cross. Thank you. God, may we celebrate. May we rejoice. May we boast in this amazing love that you've poured upon us. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen.